conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back. I'm your host, Deanna Chapman, and I am joined again by Becky Kovach to discuss Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, which is a book that I read not realizing how much of it I completely forgot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the of all of the movies, I feel like this is the one that kind of left out the most. In a sense, I feel like it kind of had to in order for the movie to work too, because, you know, obviously the Triwizard Tournament is a big focus of not only the book, but I think the movie as well. And because of how much went into making those scenes in particular, it might have been a little too much to try and include everything else. Like, did they even have the Quidditch World Cup in the movie? Probably only briefly, not nearly as long as it was in the book. Yeah, they did have the Quidditch World Cup in the movie. um, And they have like the whole scene where the Death Eaters show up and the dark mark appears and they think that like Harry did it. Okay. Um, yeah, that that's definitely in there. But like Hermione's whole like war against the use of house elves, spew, like that yeah. doesn't make it into <laughs> the movie at all. It's not even mentioned. Okay. I was like, you know, I don't remember so much of this book and, you know, you've reread them more than I have. You know, I think this might literally be my first time rereading them since I've first read them. So it's, you know, safe to assume that with the rest of the books, I will have forgotten a lot of things too. <laughs> yeah. And like at a certain point, it's e- it's so much easier to rewatch a movie versus reread a book. At oh, yeah. a certain point, you see the movie so much that you just kind of start to think, think that that's, that's the how book. they actually go. <laughs> yeah. And that that's like how the book is too. But there are some discrepancies between them. So it's like weird to go back and reread them having seen the movie so many times. Yeah, I don't know how many times I've necessarily seen the movies. I'm sure I maybe rewatched them like before the last two came out, but I always see bits and pieces of them just because they end up on TV so often still. Mm-hmm. And so then I'm like, wait, what what happened to the books? And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the rest go. But it's funny, before we hopped on the call here, I was like, oh, you know, maybe we don't need to talk about the characters again because you know we've already met the characters and you know we don't need to do this for every book but then I was like but this book introduced so many new characters <laughs> I was like okay maybe I was wrong yeah because well because you get all of the the schools kind of converging at Hogwarts so you get the addition of all of the extra students from like Bobatons and and Durmstrang yeah plus the be- so the beginning of this book is very different than the beginning of most of the other books that very first chapter, you're not even with Harry or in this small town following some old muggle caretaker um, who just like happens to stumble upon Barty Crouch Jr., uh, Peter Pettigrew, and Voldemort. I did like that difference, though, because we have started every single book with Harry being back at Privet Drive. And obviously, he's back at the beginning of this book, too, because that's just how the books were formatted, basically. You know, it's like he's starting here and then we go through the school year. And to have J.K. Rowling put that little bit of twist and give you those characters at the beginning, I really like that. And, you know, you mentioned the other schools, and I'm probably going to butcher these names, but Bobaton's Academy and Durmstrang Institute, Mm -hmm. they have their students come to Hogwarts. So, we're actually spending a lot more time than maybe we would have thought with these characters because they're roaming around the halls. Victor Crumb is constantly in the library, apparently. And, you know, we're seeing these characters just pop up throughout the book over and over again. And then obviously, once the Triwizarding Tournament comes about, you get even more of them because they're the ones competing. And it's no surprise by the time you have them, you know, picking the champions from each school, except for the surprise of, oh, Harry's also competing too, even though who knows how that happened. And you just have these new characters who they don't really contribute too terribly much, but for the sake of this story, they kind of do just enough to propel our 
usual characters forward. You know, Victor Crumb asks Hermione to the ball, and mm-hmm. Ron is sort of all googly eyes over floor. <laughs> and you just have these things happening that aren't super important, but they play the role that they need to play in order to advance our three main characters of Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Yeah. And with Floor, it's not to jump ahead, but like she actually becomes a part of Ron's family when she marries his older brother. So she's not just this passing character who shows up for the fourth book and then is gone forever. We do see her again later on. But yeah, the Victor Crumb is also, you know, he's a big new character in this book, not only because of his kind of relationship or the fact that he's kind of smitten with Hermione. Um, but he's actually introduced earlier than that because he's on um, the Bulgarian Quidditch team. Yes. Who plays in the World Cup against Ireland. And he's kind of everyone's favorite uh, Quidditch player to watch. And even Harry ends up really liking him because he's sitting there watching him and he's like, okay, this is like the Quidditch player I want to be sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And you sort of have Harry's fascination with him. And Hermione is very, very reluctant to even talk about Victor <laughs> at first, which is so funny by the time he ends up asking her to the ball and everything. And it sort of puts this tension between Hermione and Ron because, you know, I think this book did a lot with showing us how ultimately Hermione and Ron end up together. Mm-hmm. But one thing I did notice was like Ginny was in like one section where she ended up going to the ball with Neville. <laughs> and you're just like, okay, I'm still not really seeing the Harry Ginny thing going on here. Yeah. She she goes with them to the World Cup and then she goes to the ball with Neville. But other than that, she's like not really prominent in this book. Um, she wasn't in the third one either. The second one is really... the the only time that she's prominent until later on. Right. Um, so they don't really do a great job of kind of planting building that, that up. seed and building that Yeah. Um, n- until much, much later on, I think. But with Ron and Hermione, you're right. That this is where we really start to see because Ron, you know, he waits so long to ask somebody to dance that he just looks at Hermione and he goes, wait a minute, you're not going with anyone, right? And she's like, somebody already asked me. <laughs> and he gets really annoyed about it. And even more so when he finds out it's Victor Crumb because this was one of his favorite Quidditch players. She didn't even want to give Crumb the time of day and all of a sudden they're going to the ball together. And you have that moment where Hermione just yells at him too. And she was like, well, next time, don't wait so long to ask me if you want to ask me. And it's just such a great moment, even when you're just reading it on the page and not really getting to see it come to life. But just knowing what we know about these characters so far and even the fact that, you know, we know what happens at the end already since, you know, yeah. obviously spoilers, but I don't know who's listening to this who hasn't read the whole series. It's also just one of those moments where you're like, yeah, I totally feel this been there. Like <laughs> don't wait so long to ask me because somebody else is going to, and then you're going to regret it. It was very nice to see how their relationship was able to go through these tense moments and still they were able to overcome it. And, you know, Harry and Ron have had the same thing happen to where they don't talk to each other. And, you know, it's sort of just like, that's what happens when you're friends and that close with people, you know, it's bound to not be perfect 100% of the time. And JK Rowling does such a nice job of bringing that across with the characters, you know, you don't really get as in depth of a look at any of the other friend groups, really, per se. And, you know, we do get a lot more of Cedric Diggory in this. We can't forget to mention him. And, you know, it's funny because I remembered that he was a big part of this, but I didn't really remember anything about him other than that he dies. (laughs) Yeah, he plays a huge part in it because he is kind of the rightful champion from Hogwarts in the, the Tree Wizard Tournament. And Harry's name coming out of the goblet kind of steals his moment a little bit because everybody is kind of up in arms over the fact that there's supposed to be an age limit. Harry's not old enough. There's only supposed to be one champion for school. Um, so Cedric's name comes out and everybody's all excited for him. Here's the Hogwarts champion. And never mind, Harry Potter's name, of course, comes up. 
Um, but we're first introduced to Cedric when they're on their way to the Quidditch World Cup. Um, the Diggories and the Weasley clan kind of travel together by Portkey to the Cup. Um, and then Harry and Cedric kind of not butt heads as the tournament goes on. They actually end up kind of helping each other along, but there's definitely a lot of tension there too. There's a lot of tension in this book. <laughs> there really is. And some of the tension comes with the fact that Harry seems infatuated with Cho and Cedric ends up asking her to the ball. So you have this Harry and Cho thing that still needs to happen before the whole Harry and Ginny thing too. And I was like, wait, we only have three books left. How does this all happen by the end of the seventh book? And, you know, obviously I will have a lot of fun revisiting those aspects because I feel like that was something that took me a little off guard with this book because I didn't remember Cho being in this book at all either. And I know that there's this thing between her and Harry that happens. I'm assuming in the next book and then maybe two remaining books will be more like leaning towards Harry and Ginny ending up together. But it's just so funny how so much tension is in this book. And looking back now, you're like, oh, okay, I kind of see where they plucked these few things from and advanced them in later books, you know. So it obviously sucks that, you know, Cedric Diggory did not make it out because by the end of the book, you really do end up liking him and feeling bad for him. Because like you said, him and Harry do end up getting along in the end, you know, they help each other out because Harry never asked for this. And I think by the time they get to the end, Cedric understands that, especially the very end. He's like, Oh, oh, boy, <laughs> you know, now I yeah. now I really get it. And by then it's too late. So you have all of this building up throughout the book. And Unfortunately, we don't get to see or read more about Cedric Diggory because he basically served his purpose for this one book. And, you know, it's obvious that he did exist before, you know, because he also played Quidditch and things like that. He just wasn't really one of those prominent characters that stood out in any way until this book. Yeah, he was kind of just a name. Yeah. Yeah, I think he starts to realize that Harry didn't want to be in the True Wizard tournament when Harry comes to him before the first task to tell him what it is. Mm -hmm. Because Harry obviously didn't have to tell him it was dragons. He did it because he knew it was the right thing to do and he wanted to help. And Cedric kind of then repays that by telling Harry, okay, he attempts to repay it, but he does a really poor job of it because all he does is tell Harry to go take a bath with the egg, <laughs> yeah. which like weirdest hint ever. You couldn't just say open it underwater. Harry literally told you first task is dragon, yeah. <laughs> but he attempts to repay Harry by helping him along with the second task. And then by the time they get to the third one, which is the maze, they kind of run into each other in the maze, help each other out of some tight spaces. And then by the time they reach the cup they're both like you know what let's grab it together which obviously is a big mistake on cedric's part because what they don't realize is that it ends up being a port key and they are transported so it was basically all set up so that harry would win and then he would be transported alone you know voldemort wasn't banking on harry having the kind of compassion that he had for Cedric at the end and being like, oh, we should both take it because, you know, he deserves it more than I did. And Harry sort of has this false sense of victory because he's like, I wasn't supposed to be in this in the first place. And I really don't deserve it because, you know, there's definitely a lot of odd things going on. And another thing I didn't really remember from the movie was all of his communication with Sirius. Mm -hmm. They definitely play it down a lot in the movie. Him and Sirius have kind of become pen pals. Um, and then Sirius does, you know, pop into the fireplace using flu powder to kind of talk to Harry after he gets picked to be in the True Wizard Tournament. And they meet up with him outside of Hogsmeade and mm -hmm. everything like that. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, I obviously remembered him from Prisoner of Azkaban because that story sort of revolves around him. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, all of this happened too. So this book just had so much packed into it, especially with the character work they had to do. And 
you can tell because this book jumps quite a bit in length. You know, my hardcover copy of it, I believe, was 730-ish pages. So there's a lot in here. And I know some of the remaining books get even longer, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, this was the first one, though, that like... Like you said, it really jumps in length. But it's totally earned, too. It's not like it's just full of filler material that we don't really need because they have so much time between the events for the tournament that you still have to go to class and have, you know, your normal everyday lives going on. And there's just so much that Harry gets bombarded with all at once because of his inclusion in the tournament. And then not to mention, you know, Hermione's whole thing with the house elves, <laughs> you know, them working in the kitchen and trying to, you know, just make things better for them, even though she won't listen to anyone that they like doing the work. And that's sort of their purpose in life. <laughs> yeah, literally the only elf that is like down for Hermione's whole plan is uh, Dobby. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then you have, I think her name is Winky. Yes. Um, who belonged to... Barty Crouch. Barty Crouch Sr. And he fired her. He dismissed her after the Quidditch World Cup because um, she was found clutching Harry's wand, which was used to produce the dark mark. So everybody just assumed it was her or they needed a scapegoat more like because nobody actually thinks the house elf produced a dark mark. Right. Um, so she is also kind of featured in this book. She starts working at Hogwarts, except she is drinking butterbeer and she <laughs> is kind of just this sloppy mess of a creature because she doesn't want to take care of herself. She's so distraught over being dismissed. Yeah, it was an interesting look at just the lives of house elves in general, though, outside of you know what we knew of Dobby already. And mm-hmm. another character we haven't even brought up is Mad-Eye Moody, who plays a big role in this book too and in the end it ends up you know someone was pretending to be Mad-Eye Moody and was really an imposter and oh my goodness so much in this book (laughs) yeah we we think Mad-Eye Moody plays a huge role in it when in fact it's not even him it's Barty Crouch Jr. that who everyone assumes is dead um, or believes is dead yeah Um, he kind of took Mad-Eye's place right before he was meant to come to Hogwarts and then pretends to be him throughout the whole school year. And it ends up, he's the one pulling the strings and is the reason why Harry's name ended up in the goblet. Yeah. And that explains why, you know, the spells that were made to prevent underage students from entering did not apply because, you know, it wasn't a student who put his name in and it definitely wasn't Harry. So you have all of these measures that have been taken and someone still finds a way around them to do Voldemort's bidding and sort of to get rid of Harry, which again, doesn't work. So, you know, they're just going to keep trying as we well know. (laughs) And, you know, another thing we have in here is the whole Hermione versus Rita Skeeter thing (laughs) too, which is hilarious. Hermione is just so feisty in this book. I Mm -hmm. really love it. Yeah, it's cool getting to kind of see that side of her because, you know, when you're first introduced to her in Sorcerer's Stone, she's just a very, like, goody two-shoes kind of character. But here we see her, you know, trying to help Harry with the clues, even though nobody's supposed to get help preparing for the tasks. Um, She is trying to figure out how Rita Skeeter knows all these things that she's not supposed to. She's willing to bend the rules a little more in this book than the previous ones, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Rita Skeeter is also another new character in this book who plays a fairly large role, considering we've never even met her before. Yeah. She is such a pain in the ass. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, (laughs) she really is. (laughs) She is there for the sole purpose of like stirring up drama. Um, She shows up at the school the first time to do like a profile piece on all the champions. And it just ends up being peace about Harry and his past. And, you know, she has this quill that writes while she's talking and it's making up all these lies about, you know, Harry is crying during their interview when he's not. And it just all turns into a smear campaign, essentially. She's one of those reporters who 
is out for a story, but not the story anyone is going to actually give her. She takes everything out of context and just spins it to her own benefit. And, you know, she does it to Harry. She does it to Hagrid. She does it to anyone she finds remotely interesting, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she she eavesdrops on everyone. And that's how yes. she gets the story and gets information that she shouldn't have. She turns out to be an unregistered unregistered animagus. Uh, and she uses it to spy on people. All around, just a generally unlikable character. Yeah. And a whole other part of the book that I completely forgot about, despite knowing and remembering who the character was, as soon as I started reading, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this lady. And then it kept going. And I was like, wow, she was in a lot more of this than I remember. So, you know, it's really fun just going back and being like, oh, yeah, this is where this character was introduced and how big of a role they played. And because of this book being so much longer than the previous ones, there's so much more room to have these stories unfold in a more natural way without feeling like it was too cramped within the story. You know, a lot happens in this, but it's so well paced that you don't even really notice it until you hit the end of the book and you're like, wow, that was a lot to take in. Yeah. I think we've covered most of the new characters that sort of play an important role here. Not totally sure though. (laughs) I think so. There's a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, we covered the Crouch family a little and obviously, you know, They were more present than we thought initially, (laughs) so that was an interesting dynamic too. But I want to talk a little more about the story specifically because there was so much that happened in this book. And it was one of those things where the school year didn't feel quite as important as it did previously. It was like the classes were sort of secondary to the rest of the story aside from Defense of the Dark Arts. Is that what it's called? Yeah. That sounds right. <laughs> so many classes. I, you know, I've been playing the Harry Potter game and I'm like, wait, what's what? <laughs> yeah, I feel like you, you definitely don't get as much time in the classroom with them as you do in the previous books, with the exception, like you said, of Defense Against the Dark Arts. Um, and that's the class that Moody or, you know, who everyone thinks is Moody teaches. Um, and one of, I think one of the most important moments in his class and in this book is uh on the very first day i think it is he shows them the three unforgivable unforgivable curses yeah which is like a huge deal because these are things these are like spells that are never supposed to be used let alone shown to students in a classroom those being the cruciatus curse the imperious curse and uh avada Kedavra, which is the killing curse that voldemort used on on harry and his parents and it's something that comes up later on when Harry faces him again. So you have this moment in the book that sort of foreshadows everything that's going to come later on. And it's, like you said, it's by far one of the biggest classroom moments. And while you still get moments in divination class and Snape's class, you know, they don't seem to hold quite as much weight as they did in the previous books. You know, you had the time when Hermione was going like back in time and (laughs) taking like a zillion classes. And it was something that was just so core to her character in that specific book. And this time, because of the tournament and other students being at Hogwarts, you have all of these other factors that are coming in and sort of shaking up the school year. And you know that this isn't something to really expect all the time because they had stopped the tournament for a while because of bad things happening during it. And this is the first time they're bringing it back. So it's this big deal, not only within the book, but just for this world in general. It's like, hey, we're bringing back this thing and it hasn't been around for a while. So people are really excited about it. People are really worried about it. And you have all of these mixed feelings going into it. And you can tell that the professors and the students are sort of excited about it, but still a little worried about it at the same time. Although I would argue that the students are probably more excited than they are worried because they're students and they don't really understand the gravity of most things. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone kind of overlooks the fact that it's so dangerous and 
I think we see this most importantly when Harry first gets chosen as champion and Ron is angry with him. Right. Because Ron thinks that Harry entered his own name in it and um, didn't tell him that he figured out a way to do it. But then after he sees how dangerous that first task is, he kind of realizes like, okay, this is actually something that could kill him. Maybe he, he didn't do this. Yeah, and Harry being chosen is something that leads to tension between that part of the friendship. So you you have Ron, who is really just putting himself in a pickle <laughs> in this book, because he gets upset with Harry, and then he makes Hermione upset because he just assumed no one would ask her to the ball. And, you know, she has to yell at him after the fact to get through his thick head, <laughs> you know? Yeah, Ron really struggles in this book. Yeah, he kind of sucks in this book, not going to lie. He And then he takes one of the Patel twins to the ball and ignores her the whole time, so she ends up annoyed with them. Yeah, like, not a good look for Ron in this book. No, he just comes off as petty and jealous for almost the whole book. Yeah, and that is one of the downsides because, you know, Ron is a likable character. And he does have his moments in this book. But for the most part, it was, I would say, a mostly forgettable appearance by Ron <laughs> in this book. You know, I think there's going to be a lot more growth for him in the next few books. Well, I, obviously, I already know that's a fact. So, you know, you have some characters who it takes them longer to sort of get to the place that they need to be at. And, you know, that mimics life basically you know someone might be a millionaire by the time they're 25 and the rest of us not so much so <laughs> yeah you know it's just people advance at a different pace than others and obviously Hermione is one of those people who is just go 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 all the time and Harry has this sort of legacy behind him so Ron is like well I'm part of the Weasley family and we get made fun of because you know we don't have money and you know he has his like dress gown thing for the ball and it's like all ratty in comparison to Harry's and he's upset about that and there's so much going on with Ron's personal life that just sort of oozes out of the character until he's able to sort of move past that and obviously you know Fred and George they don't care <laughs> you know they just go on and do their own thing and cause trouble and we really don't know too much about Ginny to know how that affects her, really, being a Weasley, that is. So just to have this much focus on Ron and have it sort of be this thing that's weighing him down, it really sort of just put a damper on his character in this book. And, you know, obviously, that's still fine. You know, I think you can't focus on all of them in the best light every single book because, you know, that's kind of not how life works. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it, it is nice because it makes him more believable as a character, like more realistic. Right. But it just kind of sucks because he sucks in this book a little bit. Yeah. I'm like, I love Ron. I don't want to see that side of him. But J.K. Rowling makes up for it later. So it's fine. You know, it's it's just, you know, it's like hump day here with the fourth book <laughs> for Ron. <laughs> yeah, truly it is. <laughs> yeah, and I really think overall this story is really good despite the fact that it just throws so many new characters at us. It is able to juggle all of that in a way that makes sense and gets our main characters to places they need to be at in their lives in general. And, you know, we haven't really seen any sort of love interest for Hermione prior to this. You know, no. Ron and Harry have seen various girls passing in the hallway and, you know, have made comments about them, especially Ron. You know, that seems to be a very Ron thing to do. <laughs> With Harry, we see him kind of chasing after Cho a little bit. Yeah, especially in this book. And you have these moments with Harry and Ron that are sort of more expected. But for Hermione, it sort of comes out of left field based on what we learned about the character in three previous books, you know, she didn't really seem to have any interest other than going to class and reading all the books in the library, literally like all of them. Yeah. She, yeah. She's always been very focused on school and on just being the best student that she can be. So she never really 
paid much attention to anything outside of that. Or solving puzzles when it comes to Harry's life. You know, she gets really into trying to figure things out because it gives her an excuse to read more books. I can kind of relate. Yeah. (laughs) Hermione is my spirit animal. (laughs) I love Hermione. I wish I could spend as much time in the library as she does. Same. Sometimes I think her days are longer than everyone else's because <laughs> she just gets so much more done than everyone else. I mean, in, in book three, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah, that is very, very true. But that does not go so well for her. So, you know, I think she's kind of laid off on that quite a bit. And it was one of those things in this story where you really see things click for all three of our characters in different ways. You know, Hermione was so against even like wanting to talk about Crumb and not understanding everyone's obsession with him because everyone was obsessed over him because of Quidditch. But she actually sat down and got to know him and then was like, okay, you know, he's not that bad. And obviously she liked him enough to say yes to, you know, going to the ball with him after the tournament and everything. And or was it before the end of the tournament? I don't even remember. So many things happened in this. <laughs> the ball is before the end of the tournament. Okay. And then after the tournament is over, uh, before everyone like goes home for the summer, he asks her about like visiting, being able, about visiting, about being able to write to her. Yeah. Um, and just kind of staying in touch. Right. And even though you know, we know things don't really go any further with the two of them. It was just something that was nice to revisit and be like, oh, yeah, you know, all of this happened. And that's sort of what started this tension between Hermione and Ron, other than her usual disapproving looks and (laughs) comments towards Ron for not doing something he should be doing. But just the growth of the main characters, you know, even for Hagrid, too, you know, he has a pretty big part in the book and it's maybe not as much of a part as we've seen previously because it's more on a personal note with him. He's not really with the kids quite as much. You know, he's obviously still teaching and he really loves his dragons. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, so that first event is sort of like this big deal for him probably because he's probably all excited about the dragons and everything but then Hagrid is another one that we get kind of uh, a love interest for in this yes. book um, unexpectedly what her name is uh, Madame Maxine yes and she's the headmistress of Bobatons and she's like half giant but she doesn't want to admit it which I thought was very interesting because I didn't remember the whole thing about giants being like mean and cruel and things like that and you know, because the only one we've known about is Hagrid. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, that's sort of a weird thing to throw in here when it goes against everything we know about Hagrid. So, you know, why would she be so ashamed? And then we find all of that out and we're like, oh, you know, now I kind of get it. So you have these things going on with Hagrid that he's not necessarily sharing, but sort of end up being found out about through other means anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So so much story in this. I feel like we're probably <laughs> leaving out like 20 other things. But, you know, we haven't even really talked about the Malfoys in this. And I wouldn't say Draco plays like a super big role in this. He's sort of just being Draco in this. And then he ends up being shut up by someone. <laughs> so it's one of those things where we learn more about the Malfoy family without them necessarily needing to be overly present. Yeah, they're they're not super prominent in this one. Um, I honestly don't even remember a ton of like what Malfoy does in this book. I think it's mostly him just, you know, like making comments about Hagrid being a teacher and stuff during the care of magical creatures classes and him just being a typical jerk. And that's kind of all I remember. I think the more important thing that I remember is the fact that we learn that his parents used to be Voldemort followers. Yeah. Yeah, we learned that. And then I think the one other thing that he like does is kind of lead the students campaign against Harry being a Hogwarts champion. Oh, yeah, that that's the other thing, which, you know, was pretty minor considering it's Draco, you know, <laughs> that's sort of just something, you know, it was like a smear campaign, basically. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it was. And it didn't work out so well for him. So, you know, there is that. Oh, and didn't 
uh, Mad-Eye turn him into like a ferret or something <laughs> ridiculous. Oh my God, yes. How could I have forgotten that? That's one of the best moments in the book. And the thing is like, it wasn't really Mad-Eye, but it was still really, really funny. Yeah, it wasn't Mad-Eye. It was Barty Crouch Jr., but Malfoy like goes to attack Harry from behind. Uh, and Mad-Eye stops him by transforming him into a ferret and then kind of bouncing him around. Yeah. And McGonagall like witnesses it and gets very mad at Mad-Eye <laughs> because ab- ab- of course transfiguration should never be used as a punishment, but like Malfoy, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's funny because Barty Crouch Jr. really pulled off Mad-Eye pretty well. You know, that's exactly what I would expect a character like Mad-Eye Moody to do. He's like not going to put up with kids like Malfoy. And I think he really sold it up. Well, obviously, he really sold it if even, you know, Dumbledore didn't realize it right away. And I think that was one of the things that we don't really get to see a lot of Dumbledore in this, but we get just enough of him. Like when Harry is in his office and he sees the trial and everything. That's another moment that was important, but it went by so fast. I don't even know if it was a full chapter. It might have been like 10, five or 10 pages or something like that. And in a book this long, you know, it might not seem that important because they didn't spend too terribly much time on it. But at the same time, you know, Harry has all these questions after seeing that. And it's sort of like Harry is getting bits and pieces of what he needs to know from Dumbledore, not necessarily intentionally, because that is something that Barty Crouch Jr. wouldn't have had any power over. So Harry probably wasn't supposed to see that trial and have all those questions for Dumbledore later. Yeah. I think this is our first time seeing the pen seed too, right? If I'm not mistaken, it is. Yeah. So that, this is our first time seeing that and it kind of does play a, a larger role later on. But yeah, Harry seeing the trial was definitely not supposed to happen. He starts to learn more about you know, what was actually happening after Voldemort's downfall. And I think this is the first time when we really start to hear about what happened to Neville's parents, too. And that was something that Dumbledore was pretty protective of, because it's not his place to really tell that full story, you know? And it's one of those things where Neville is the kind of character where you know who he is, but there's still sort of this mystery surrounding his backstory and everything because we know he is raised by his grandmother she sends him you know these packages and stuff and howlers or whatever and really Mm -hmm. embarrasses him at times which isn't hard to do it's neville you know not too hard to do to embarrass him because he's pretty good at doing that himself too but Mm. you sort of start to understand more about his character in this even if he's not super present in it Ginny ends up going to the ball with him and I don't know if we get too terribly much of him outside of that. It was like him and Ginny didn't have a ton to do. So it seemed like she just sort of put them together for a little bit. You know, nothing's really going to come of that. It was sort of like Ginny wanted to go and Neville didn't have anyone to go with. So they went together. Yeah. So we get that. And then when Mad-Eye is showing them the unforgivable curses, oh, yes. you see that Neville gets very upset um, over the Cruciatus curse, which we learn later on is is what happened to his parents and what drove them mad. And then we get like kind of the, the mention of his parents in Harry's like view of the trials. Um, but other than that, Neville doesn't take too, um, too big a role in this one. Right. And it's a pretty sad backstory for him too, once you get all of this information. And it's kind of a bummer that you don't really get to see any of that dealt with in this book. You know, it's like Harry has this information that he really shouldn't be sharing with anyone else. And I'm not even sure if he mentions it to Ron and Hermione, because, you know, the three of them, at least so we thought, tell everyone, tell each other everything. And, you know, Hermione kind of keeps her little secret of who asked her to the ball and everything like that. So there are some things that, you know, this little friend group still needs to work out. But as far as it being Neville's story to tell, he's not necessarily the in crowd, so to speak, for their little friend group, but they don't shun him either. Everyone in Gryffindor sort of 
sticks together, whether they particularly spend a lot of time with some of the other people or not. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Neville later on, because I don't really remember too much about how his storyline progresses. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do eventually get to learn more about his parents and his upbringing. And he kind of comes out of a shell a lot more as time goes on, which is great. Um, Because he just he's always kind of in the background, just kind of trudging along behind everybody. And as he gets older, he gets stronger, he gets more confident. And it's cool to see that growth for him. Yeah. So even though Goblet of Fire was a lull for some of the characters, again, I think it's just circumstances because of the tournament and that sort of disrupting the norm around Hogwarts. So you have all of these other characters coming in. And, you know, from the other schools, we don't really learn too much about any of the characters outside of Floor and Victor. So there's not too terribly much there. I mean, the headmaster at Durmstrang ends up being, you know, a follower of Voldemort, an ex-follower of Voldemort, you know, as was Snape at one point. So you have these characters who have this dark past and they have this mark on their arm that sort of comes back and starts burning. So you have this suspicion going around too. And in reality, he ends up fleeing and for good reason, because, you know, he knows something bad is going to happen. And Snape knows it too. So you have these characters who have this sort of dark past, and we're starting to learn more and more about Snape as well, even though he's not the teacher who gets the focus because of Mad-Eye Moody coming in and then turning out to be an imposter. Yeah, I think this is when we learn that Snape used to be a Death Eater too. Mm-hmm. Like we, we always kind of have the suspicion, but this is the confirmation of it. Yeah, and still the fact that Dumbledore trusts him says a lot because we find out that Dumbledore doesn't necessarily always do things the normal way, which isn't really all that surprising. But, you know, the Ministry of Magic is like, you know, we kind of let you skate on a lot of stuff here. (laughs) And there's still this respect that goes around when you say Dumbledore's name, especially within the Ministry and just on the grounds of Hogwarts in general. So, you know, he might not be the most by the book headmaster, but he is someone who people have come to respect, whether it's Snape or, you know, McGonagall or any of the other professors at the school, because there's a reason for everything that he does. And we quickly learned that we didn't need to say that in this book necessarily. We knew that by the first book by the end of the first book, pretty much. So you have this headmaster who is very different. Well, you have all three headmasters and mistresses who are very different from each other. So just getting them all in the same room together and seeing how they interact and everything like that was just so fascinating too, because it wasn't necessarily the big moments that caught my attention. Sometimes it's the smaller things and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, definitely forgot that detail there. Yeah. So I think- the listeners know by now that I clearly forgot a lot of this book. <laughs> but is there anything else that you want to touch on before we wrap this up? Like I said, I know there's probably something we forgot and, you know, some Harry Potter fan is probably screaming at their podcast player right now being like, you forgot about this. What are you doing? I mean, it's a long book. There's so much. Moaning Myrtle was a nice little touch when Harry went to go take a bath with the egg, though. I will say that because we definitely, we touched on Harry needing to take a bath with the egg, but we did not touch on Moaning Myrtle being there and kind of creeping on him. It was nice to see her come back, but it was a little creepy. (laughs) Yeah. Like she just was kind of there as he was taking the bath. I was like, you know, he's a child, right? (laughs) Yeah, but she still helps him. As does Dobby later on. Yeah. Dobby's a good one. (laughs) And the gillyweed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think think that we kind of touched upon everything a little bit, except we we haven't really talked about the second task too much. We talked about the first one being the dragons. We talked about the third one being the The maze maze and the port key. And the port key. The second one we haven't really gone too much into. Not that there's a ton to talk about with it, but basically Harry goes, they, they all have to go and retrieve somebody from the bottom of the lake where they are being guarded by people. 
and Harry is the first one to find Ron. He, he, he has to try and retrieve Ron. He's the first one to get there. Um, but he ends up being the last one back because he refuses to leave anybody behind. The second task was a really good one for Harry because it showed that he is so unselfish. You know, he is someone who wants to succeed and, you know, clearly has this competitiveness about him, especially when it comes to things like this and Quidditch and just, you know, competing in general. But he's not going to win at the cost of others. He still has a conscience about these things, whereas plenty of other people we know (laughs) wouldn't. Right. Yeah, it says a lot about who he is that he didn't want to stay behind or he didn't want to leave anybody behind. And he stayed there to make sure that everybody got out safely, even though like as soon as he gets out, Ron is like, what do you mean you stayed behind? Did you really think they were going to let anything happen to us? And he has a reason to be leery of that because while, you know, he knows that Dumbledore and everyone else wants everyone to be safe, there's still been a lot of fishy things going on. So he couldn't be 100% certain. The only way he could be 100% certain was if he got everyone out himself. Right. He stays behind. He takes Ron out and he takes out Floor's little sister, uh, Gabrielle, because Floor freaks out when she gets attacked by the Grindylo and she doesn't actually make it down there. So Harry now has to bring Ron and Gabrielle back to the surface himself. Um, But he waited to make sure that Victor came and got Hermione and Cedric came and got Cho, and then he takes care of whoever is left. Right. And it's one of those moments where Floor was very, very thankful because, you know, she knew that her sister was okay, but she still had this sort of feeling in her gut, like, I screwed up. Yeah. And she had this guilt that was just sort of building up probably the entire time she was sidelined. Yeah. Um, this is also the first time that we see her being kind of warm. Right. Because um, every every instance we've seen her up until then, she's kind of haughty and, and looks down on, you know, Harry as a champion and just isn't very friendly. She's definitely another character that Harry sort of warms up to by the end. And you see that again in the maze where he sort of shoots up a flare basically to make sure she gets out of there. And you have him doing all of these things because I think by the time that he makes it to the final event, he knows deep down that something is probably going to go wrong. But then when him and Cedric are so close to the end, he's like, oh, okay, you know, maybe we're in the clear. And turns out they weren't. And then Harry has this guilt because Cedric pays the ultimate price for it. Yeah. And that's something that Harry carries with him. Um, well into the next book. Right. I I think one of the most heartbreaking moments in this whole series is when Harry gets Cedric's body back and Cedric's father is there waiting for Cedric to return from the the past um, and is hit with this realization that his son is gone. Right. And that moment is so much more powerful because we meet them at the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. And, And Mr. Diggory is just such like a warm, friendly person and um, is so excited to see them and to go to the, the, World Cup with them. Um, and he's just nothing but nice. Exactly. And if we didn't get that moment with him, we wouldn't connect with him at the end quite as much because we'd just be like, oh, okay, here's, you know, these parents we never even met. And Arthur has this connection with Mr. Diggory already. So, you know, you have these things that all tie together by the end. And even though the outcome isn't great, it's kind of sort of become the one thing that like Hufflepuff is known for. Mm -hmm. And so this book just has such a powerful impact on that group of students, especially because they've spent so much time with Cedric. And, you know, it's like if that would have happened to someone in Gryffindor, I think readers might have felt it a bit more just because we have spent so much more time with Harry, Ron and Hermione and Fred, George, Ginny, you know, all the Weasleys, basically. Yeah. (laughs) But it still has this impact because we get that introduction to them at the beginning. And then you see him in the halls throughout the other two tasks, you know, he plays 
a big part in those because they sort of give equal attention to everyone. I mean, Harry obviously gets a little more attention because it's Harry, but I think J.K. Rowling did a nice job of balancing the champions so that you care about each of them by the end of it, aside from Harry. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, so much. (laughs) It was really good, though. Like, I really enjoyed rereading this because it was almost like reading it for the first time again, given how much I forgot. And, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously, I kind of knew the big plot points just from having read the book before and then watching the movie, which the movie clearly touches on the biggest of the plot points and then sort of has to get in and get out because there's way too much in this book to cover in one movie, which is why they did two movies for the last book, because there's just so much in that one as well. And, you know, like you said, this is the first book that gets exponentially longer. (laughs) So there's still so much more to come in the remaining three books because they are sort of on the longer side, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe one is like more normal length, but... The fifth book is the longest of all of them. Okay. And then the sixth, I think, is slightly shorter than the fourth. And I think the seventh goes back up again. That sounds about right. I'm looking at my paperbacks on my bookshelf right now. Uh, My other ones are in a box, so I uh, can't just look at them and figure it out. But I am sure we will have a lot of fun talking about those ones as well. But any final, final thoughts here before we wrap up? No, I think we, we, considering how long this one is, I think we've done a good job of covering our bases. (laughs) I tried to remember as much as I could so that we could cover some more of the smaller details. You know, I know the Triwizard Tournament was a big part of the book, but I didn't want to spend all of our time talking about that because there was so much else that happened surrounding those events and surrounding everything. And, you know, Sirius coming back as a dog, (laughs) you know, they go to visit him and Harry going back and forth with him. There's so much personal growth that happens especially for Harry in this. And obviously him being the character that all of these stories revolve around, it's one of those things where it's like J.K. Rowling was able to still keep it very fresh and interesting with this one. And I am very glad. I'm excited to read the next one, even though it's longer than this one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The fifth one's a good one. I'll try not to take so long to get to it this time. I know we had quite a big gap between episodes here. That's okay. Maybe I will end up rereading the fifth one again before we do that. You probably have time. (laughs) I also just haven't been doing a ton of reading lately, so we'll we'll see what happens. It's okay. Well, that wraps up our discussion on Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. You can follow us at GeekdomPod on Twitter. We have a Patreon set up if you want to donate and help support the podcast. It'll also allow me to get out some more bonus episodes, which I have not done many of so far, but I would like to do more of them. And you can find us at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. As always, thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.